We got the beep. We got the beep. We got the beep. We got. Okay. I got my own beep, Nick. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by low-sodium potato chips. Why? Why? Why bother? If you're going to eat chips... Yeah, that's not where I'm going to cut out my, my sodium. Well, I mean, if you're going to cut out your sodium, why not cut out the chip? That's what I mean. Yeah. 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 It doesn't seem, it seems yeah. like a terrible idea. Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health. And due to a scheduling snafu for this episode and the next episode, we are going to be recording without Dr. Chris Gill. So it's just me and Dr. Jennifer Ryder here from the Department of Epidemiology. Hi. How are you? I'm great. And I would like to uh, request, as usual, that if people would go and give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it is that you rate us on, we really, we really appreciate it. And if you are willing to go and write us a review, that makes us even happier. So we get two new reviews, which is why I'm saying this. So I'm going to read them to you. Yes. One says, and these are a little bit old by the time I'm reading them. I think I missed them. But anyway, one says, fun and educational. I love these podcasts. Usually listen listen to it during my workouts. I'm pretty sure people at the gym think I'm crazy when I laugh out loud to the jokes. Question, where do you guys find the fun epi stuff for the Amazing and Amusion selections? Uh, I read a lot, but I never find the fun stuff. Yeah, we we could probably do a better job of citing those those stories that we use for amazing and amusing. I do think you're right, but where do we, where, where do you, what's your go-to? Because well, Don, when it was Don, he would go to the, um, the ignoble awards a fair bit. Oh, okay. That's a good one. I hadn't thought about that. I used PNAS quite a bit, but then discovered that, that Chris was also using PNAS. Chris and, is a big PNAS fan. Right. Yep. So that led to some duplication. Lately, I have found this new online magazine called Nautilus that I love. Yeah. It's kind of like Scientific American, but but different. Yeah. So I would say those are, but also some people now, occasionally I'll, I'll get a tip for an article. I have to give credit to my husband for giving me the toilet coating article, which, oh. I, which I know is a... A favorite that of the listeners. A, that was yeah. a big favorite. I can't yeah. believe uh, you didn't you didn't give a, a reference to where you got that one from when you. I mean, I did, did reference I the Guardian, yeah. but I'm not sure that I I gave my husband proper credit. Yeah, he deserves credit for that. Um, I get most of mine uh, from Twitter. I things oh, really? that people okay. yeah people tweet out, and I just find amusing. Uh, so the second one says insightful and fun. Hi from Manitoba, Canada. I'm loving your critical and thought-provoking review of EpiPapers. Thanks for making lots of jokes and making complex papers understandable. I found myself laughing out loud and having aha moments in several episodes. Would highly recommend to anyone in the... And then I didn't get the rest of it. In the... So make up, fill in. You could fill in your own. In the universe, anyone in the world of... uh, Sorry about that. Um, So thank you... To Avo Girl and to Nadia, I think is the other one. We really appreciate it. And if others would go and give us a review, we would greatly appreciate it, both because we enjoy reading them, but also because uh, it helps other people find us. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a study on hot spotting in healthcare, which is a term that I was not familiar with. Greg Cohen here in the Epi Department is the one who uh, told me about this paper, and it seemed like a really interesting topic. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about a really, really short commentary paper on celebrating error detectors, which I really liked, but I think it raises some interesting questions that I think we could talk about. And then in our Amazing and Amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud, or you will tell us how we can eat memories. <laughs> Maybe. I I I have to tell you I have told so many people about that. I just the idea that you could eat memories sounds delicious. It sounds delicious. It sounds like there's a lot of marketing opportunities in there. <laughs> 
All right, so let's get into uh, segment one. So we're going to talk about an article that looked at the impact of hot spotting in healthcare, which we'll explain what that is. Uh, it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and the study was entitled Healthcare Hotspotting, a Randomized Control Trial by first author Amy Finkelstein of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't think we've done a study by anyone from MIT. As I said, this one was referred to us by a, a colleague here at, at the BU School of Public Health. And here are some some headlines that this particular study got. So Yahoo Finance says, study, hot spotting social factors not that effective in taming health costs. A program aimed at keeping America's sickest patients out of the hospital inspired dozens of copycats and attracted millions in funding. But a new study reveals it didn't work, says Business Insider. Program meant to curb repeat hospital stays fails big tests, says The Telegraph. And NPR says reduce health costs by nurturing the sickest. A much-touted idea disappoints. So... You, you gave can, a, you gave away the punchline here. You, you definitely, <laughs> we did not bury the lead in any way on this one. But I still, obviously, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So to anyone who says negative studies don't get published in high impact journals, that is not always the case. But Jen, can you can you give us the rundown on this one? What they did and what they found? Yes, definitely. So I also was not familiar with the term hotspotting uh, prior to reading this this paper. That term really comes from an article that Atul Gawande wrote for The New Yorker back in 2011 called The Hotspotters, uh, which profiled this program uh, that was sponsored by the Camden Coalition of Healthcare Providers uh, that was really aimed to address healthcare super utilizers. So as it turns out, 5% of the population accounts for 50% of healthcare spending in the US, which is pretty remarkable. So this program was really designed as an intensive model to engage and connect patients with both healthcare, but also other resources available in the community. The patients to be recruited into this program were identified using real-time data on hospital admissions, and that's the part that's referred to as hotspotting. Mm -hmm. And this same program, as you heard from the headlines, um, was expanded to, to other cities. So in general, care transition programs have shown quite promising results. But the Camden Coalition program is a little bit unique because of its very heterogeneous patient population and the population having much more complex medical needs than, than some of the uh, other groups that have, have been studied. Evaluation of these super utilizer programs has been pretty limited. So the Camden Core Model program looked at 36 patients both before and after the intervention and also did some observational studies. But one of the big challenges in evaluation of these programs is handling regression to the mean. So these patients who were going to be recruited into the program were selected because of their very, very high healthcare utilization. And it's possible that over time, that utilization is going to wane on its, on its own. So that really requires a randomized controlled trial for evaluation. So that was what was done to evaluate this particular program. They were looking at the intervention versus usual post-discharge care, which was not measurable, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. They couldn't really look at what was provided to patients in the comparison arm. The program was evaluated between June 2014 and September 2017. They aimed to recruit 800 patients, which was achieved after identifying a little over 1,400 eligible patients. And that was designed based on detecting a decrease of nine percentage points in 180-day readmissions. So the Camden Core Model Program is for adults aged 18 to 80 who were living in Camden, New Jersey. And Camden has about 37% of the population living below the poverty line. To be included in the program, uh, a patient had to have at least one hospital admission at any Camden area hospital system in the six months prior to their index admission. And they also had to have at least two chronic conditions as well as at least to additional conditions, such as use of at least five medications, uh, lack of social support, a coexisting mental health condition, et cetera. 
Patients were excluded if they were uninsured, had cognitive impairment, or uh, for certain admission types, for instance, um, for cancer treatments or for diseases where there really is no available treatment. They enrolled less than 0.5% of the Camden population, but those enrolled reflected 11% of the city's hospital spending. The intervention itself involved a multidisciplinary team, uh, a number of home visits, escort to healthcare visits, coordination of follow-up care, things like measurement of blood pressure and blood sugar, disease-specific self-care, as well as support in applying for social services and behavioral health resources. In terms of the data that they used, they used hospital discharge data that captured 98% of New Jersey hospital discharges uh, for Camden residents. They match 97% of the controls and 98.5% of the intervention group to the discharge record for the index admission. So they had very good linkage in that way. They also linked to the National Death Index. For their primary outcome, they were looking at readmission within 180 days after hospital discharge. They also looked at a number of secondary endpoints like number of readmissions, charges, and mortality. They used linear regression with and without control for age, sex, race, ethnicity, and healthcare utilization prior to the index date. So what they found was that the participants had an average of 1.8 hospital admissions in the six months prior to their index admission. And in the Camden adult general population, that number is 0.1 admissions, so much higher utilization. The participants were about half male, 40% were less than 55 years old, and 30 were older than 65 years. There were 55% non-Hispanic blacks and 30% Hispanic participants. Three quarters were unmarried, half were without a high school diploma, and 95% were unemployed. In terms of the program implementation, the average patient received 7.6 home visits and 8.8 telephone calls and was accompanied to two and a half physician visits. So there was a lot of support in terms of discharge care. The median duration of participation was 92 days, and three-quarters of the patients received both a home visit within 14 days of discharge and a provider visit within 60 days of discharge. The intervention effect. So in the treatment group, the 180-day readmission rate was 62.3%. In the control group, it was 61.7%. Really high. Yeah. And there was no effect of the intervention on any of the secondary outcomes that they looked at. So one interesting uh, secondary analysis that they did was they just looked in the intervention group and found that there was, in fact, a decline in admissions between the six months prior to the index admission and the six months after admission. But, of course, the control group also had these same declines. Do you, did, you, uh, did you happen to note how much the decline was? So it depended on the the time frame that they mm-hmm. looked at, which was also really interesting. So there was a 38% decrease in the probability of admission during the six months after the intervention compared to the six months prior, but a 29% increase in the probability of admission in the six months after compared to the 12 to 18 month window prior to the index admission. So what do you make of that? Because if... I'm getting my numbers right. You said 60% of roughly 60% experienced remission, uh, readmission, excuse me, in the in the intervention period. So a 38% higher is basically 100%. Or so, is that a, Well, so there was a 30 if you were just comparing the 6 months before and the 6 months after there was a 38% decrease. But keep in mind that that six months before, the patients had been selected based on what happened in those six months of prior. Course, of course, But got if it, you extend it, it, the it. window even farther back in time, you know, 12 to 18 months, actually those six months after the intervention were worse. Got it. Yeah. Got it. And, yeah. and the whole point of that analysis wasn't to actually show any 
benefit, it was to explain why it is that an analysis like that would be biased. Exactly. Why we need a control group. Yes. Which I thought was was really nice, actually, and something that you rarely would see in a New England Journal of Medicine type paper. So I actually, I thought that was, was a really nice addition to this. So... It seems to me that the the take-home message here is exactly as, I mean, the, the, the headlines largely got it right here, that this did not work, that, you know, we can quibble over whether or not we think that the outcome was the best choice for an outcome. We could probably quibble over whether or not we thought the intervention was the best choice of an intervention. But, you know, my overall take on this is this is a pretty good study to answer this question that they did a pretty good job. I've got some things that I'd probably want to talk through and just sort of think through whether these were the you know the optimal choices, but you never make the optimal choices. But it seems to me the design was well laid out to answer the question that they were trying to answer. Um, things that I tend to think about, you know, sort of when you're doing a linkage study, is it possible that they didn't identify some of the outcomes? It seems pretty unlikely given that 62% of, yeah. of patients were, were identified as having the outcome. It's probably not an over, uh, probably not an underestimate. I suppose it could be an overestimate in theory, but only the only way that would happen is if you'd done a poor job of linking and you'd link people to the wrong information. Confounding doesn't appear to be a, a major issue. They've they've you know randomized. There are some things that are unbalanced, but a little bit. But you'd expect that, and they had pre-specified things that they wanted to adjust for. So overall, to me, this is seems to me fairly clear evidence of no benefit. What do we conclude from that? Do we conclude that hot spotting doesn't work? I think we can conclude that this is probably not where we want to spend all of our resources. And do you think that that we can say that as a general statement or do you think this is the kind of intervention where you know what you choose to do and how you define this particular you know, intervention. There are lots of different things you could have done in terms of you know this this falling under this heading of of hot spotting. You know what you choose to do might matter. I agree, and I also I don't think we can say that hot spotting in general does not work. But I think for this particularly challenging population, I think we can conclude that it was it was not effective. And so and so you know some of the other care transition models that they mentioned may, in fact, be very effective in populations where, like they said, they're somewhat less heterogeneous and they have uh, somewhat lower healthier care utilization than this particular population. Did you did you have a, a, a thoughts on whether or not before you read this, you thought it was going to work? Because I... I- so My, I had been spoiled. I had oh, when when Greg gave us the article, he mentioned that, that it, didn't, it work. didn't work and that it was it was a bummer. So I knew that it I knew the answer before reading it. But I think had I not known that, I think I would I think I would have been surprised because I I think I would have thought that helping people with access and support for others, I would have thought that that would be effective. I'm I'm a bit surprised. So amazingly, I was there for that same conversation and I completely <laughs> forgot that he had told us that it didn't work. So I went into this, I'm going to say that I had no no uh, advanced knowledge. And my, my prior to this was I thought about this. My first thought was, yeah, this is going to work. Then I thought about it for a while and I thought, well, this is a, this is a tough population. So I think it's going to work, but I don't think you're going to find dramatic effects because, you know, there are all kinds of reasons why people end up in the hospital that, that may not, when you're, when you're, when you're this sick, that may not be alleviated by these kind of home uh, or, or intervention type models. And I was surprised that they were not able to have a benefit, which is why I, I was asking the question earlier as to whether or not we think this is a universal, it does not work mm-hmm. versus, you know, is it possible there are other approaches they could have tried that might have worked? And I still wonder about that. So, but you're talking about other approaches that they could have used after that index admission. So not looking further upstream at all yeah. of the the factors that, that affect their being admitted in the first place, but instead things that could be done to reduce admission after the first admission. Yeah, oh. it, it, no, that's exactly it. Okay. That, that, sort of starting at the point of you, you've got a patient who has been admitted. What are the things, what are the steps that we could take to prevent this patient from being readmitted? My, my experience is 
which are very minimal, but my experiences with, with, you know, dealing with those who have already, you know, have a number of, of chronic conditions who are, you know, have, are dealing with, with their own issues within their lives, that this is a tough population Mm -hmm. to reduce the need for readmission, but, 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 but you've got to be able to do something, right? I mean, it, it just, my gut tells me that you can, and I, I don't, there's nothing in here that that suggests that at least as done, you can. Are there specific things that you thought weren't part of the, this intervention that should have been? No, I, I I don't know enough about the area to be able to yeah. say that you know this is what I would have done differently. Of course, no, I, I don't. I think that you know they were very thoughtful about this and they put together a a plan that they thought was going to work best. But it just seemed to me that that, that I don't want to I don't want to throw the entire idea out, but it, it is a, it is a real, I would be really cautious going into a, a another version of this. Yeah. I mean, w- one thing that is interesting is, is what was happening in the usual care group, yeah. which we can't quantify. And of course, I think, you know, the way this was designed, comparing this to what was actually being done already was, was the right way to go. But I wonder if that's some of the examples of things that could have been involved in usual care, but but that was already, it seemed like, pretty intense post-discharge management. So maybe that's part of the issue as well. It is possible. And of course, it could that could explain. I mean, if, if what we're essentially comparing is a intense regimen to a more intense regimen, right. maybe you don't find much of a benefit. But at a 62% readmission rate, you know, it's hard to hard to really say that that the standard of care was effective. Okay, effective isn't the right word because we don't have a comparison to standard of care. I guess I don't know what that would be, but but that that something is you know that, that this is just a complex problem. Any any uh, so I I may have painted an overly rosy picture of the of the design. Do you have any? Were there any things that concerned you in terms of the way that they set it up? Not at all. I mean, I thought it was again completely outside of my area. That's why I love this podcast. Yeah. I have to read all of these papers get that to, I would get to. That I, you're right. I have the <laughs> opportunity to read all of these papers that I wouldn't otherwise encounter. But no, there was there was nothing that stood out to me. So I did the, the one thing I did wonder a little bit about was the whether the uh, outcome is the is the most appropriate outcome and that's not a hmm. I don't say that to say I have a better one I'm just curious as to you know is is that kind of a standard outcome the 180 day readmission that would make the most sense or are there other you know might you think about a quality of life or um I don't know what else you might do I suppose cost but it's not going to be if you have no benefit in terms of uh, admission, I'm doubting you're going to reduce cost. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think they were using outcomes that they could reliably collect. And and maybe there are, I, I think quality of life would have been really interesting, but probably hard to assess. Do you think it's possible at all that the intervention bled into the control at all? Hmm. That um, I, I didn't totally understand exactly how the intervention was being delivered compared to standard of care. But I, I, even if different people are delivering those two interventions, which obviously they are to a certain extent because you've got people doing home visits that wouldn't be doing it anyway, you know, whether when you know you're being compared to something else, you up your game in the standard of care arm because you're being watched. Sure. I think that that seems possible. And it's another reason why it would have been really interesting to see what happened in the usual care group, how many home visits they were typically getting and, and how quickly that that happened in most cases. Yeah, it would have been it would have been it would have been nice to know a little bit more about that. But you know, overall I think we're we're both pretty much in agreement. This is a, a well designed study to answer a a question that was clearly uh, being, you know, touted as a solution to this problem and unfortunately no benefit. Does it surprise did it surprise you that this paper got published in the New England Journal of Medicine? No, just because I think the program had been so high profile already and had been written up in the the New Yorker. And so in that way, I don't think it was that surprising. And so, okay, let me drill down on that a little bit more. I mean, this is an idea that was developed, my understanding, by uh, Dr. Atul Gawande, who is a, you know, a, a really popular 
figure, um, written a lot of books and has, you know, has come up with a lot of really interesting approaches to lots of different things, but in healthcare specifically, given that it was a, a null finding, do you think it would have ended up in the New England Journal if it hadn't been, you know, a, if it was just sort of a, a just a generic, um, not generic is the right word, just an idea that somebody came up with to try to improve home healthcare, uh, sorry, improve, uh, reduce re- readmission rates for the, the population that it would have ended up in the New England Journal, given that it was a null finding. I, I don't mean in general, but given that it was a null finding. Like if it had been my idea. Yeah, or mine. <laughs> uh, if it was mine, it would have been, obviously. Uh, no, I don't. I'm going to say no. Yeah, I, I, there is something that, that, that does you know, nag at me a little bit that makes me think this is a little bit about the 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 star power behind the idea rather than the idea itself. And I, I'm, I, to be honest with you, I have no problem that it was in the New England Journal. I actually think it's a really interesting and I'm all in favor of no results in high impact journals because I think we want to know the those null findings. But it does, it did strike me. Now, the, the second thing I wondered was, in some ways, it's sort of, a wonder or, or impressive that it was published at all, you know, given that it was an old finding and given that the, the providers, not the, those doing the study, but the providers of this intervention had a, been a lot at stake. I mean, it was in some ways it's impressive that they, not impressive, it's not impressive, but it, it should be standard. But I don't know, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, I'm glad it went forward given that this was, you know, it was a, a, a trial that had important information, but, you know, doesn't, necessarily look great for the for the implementers. Uh, yeah, I agree. But the fact that it had been rolled out in other cities and they don't talk about the no. costs here. Uh, it would be very, very interesting to to have a better understanding of the cost. But I imagine it's not it's not cheap. <laughs> um, and yeah. yeah, so I think it's it's really a great thing that it was uh, published and in a high profile journal, like you said. Yep, I'm. I'm so I'm on board. I I, I really enjoyed this one. Some, some. Uh, any any last thoughts before I, I give a few of mine? Nope. So a couple of things. So I, I just wanted to point out that get raised in this article. Some of them, some of them good, some of them bad. So they used linear regression mm-hmm. to calculate an adjusted effect estimate. So it's a randomized trial. So you've you've created uh, the expectation of of balance. They specified factors that they wanted to adjust for, and then use linear regression to adjust for a risk, to get a risk difference. And I know this is controversial, but I love this. I love that they do this. And why? What do you love about it? The idea that that we would calculate adjusted risk differences rather than oh, yeah. relative risks, and that you can do this using linear regression. It does have problems. I'm I'm well aware that it has issues, but I just still, I, I like it. I have to admit, I have done this myself uh, recently. And just think it's a, it's, I think, first of all, I, I really appreciate the focus on risk differences in general, but in particular, the fact that they had pre-specified these variables that they were going to adjust for and then adjusted for my understanding of, of trials, that's really good principles of study design. So another thing they noted, they were talking about effect modification. So they did look to mm-hmm. see whether there were subgroups within which the effect of this intervention, there, there might be an effect of the intervention. So they say, and then they say, however, uh, they didn't find any. And they say, however, the trial was not powered to detect smaller reductions that could be clinically meaningful, nor was it powered to analyze effects within specific subgroups. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, but it seems to me it's it's sort of relying on the underpowered nature when in fact it seems to me, and this is my experience, that rarely, if ever, do we find a null finding within which there are subpopulations in which the effect, where there was an effect, but it's still averaged out to the null. It can happen. It, it can certainly happen. can happen. But it seems to me rare. And so relying on the fact that it was an underpowered to detect those differences seems to me probably not the best way to go. But at the same time, it seems like effect modification could be a really, really important question in this study. I mean... Say more. Why? Why? Well, the, I mean, it just, I don't know, it just seems probable that there are groups for which this could be effective. It's a, it's a little like we were talking about how, you know, we aren't willing to say this program isn't effective for anyone. I mean, it's basically the same question. If you chose the right subgroup, maybe there would be an effect. 
Yeah, so that, but if if that were true, if there were some subgroup in there, mm-hmm. unless they are a really, really, really small subgroup, in which case we, maybe we it's not even worth know. it, right. it seems to be unlikely that you'd, you'd, you'd hit the null when there's this subpopulation buried in there for which you're having a benefit. You know, I mean, unless, again, unless they're a really, really small subpopulation or you're doing harm for others somehow, <laughs> which I don't yeah. think is what's going on here. Uh, I don't know. No, I, don't I, know. I hear what you're saying. And but I think, you know, again, this population, one of the challenges was that it was very heterogeneous. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, so sure. and I think that that makes it harder for the investigators to to find an effect. Yep. Yep. Okay, uh, a couple of things for the last, take the last word here. Uh, did you notice there were only three authors to this paper? I did notice that. Did you notice that they are all uh, PhD or DSC, no MDs? SCD, yes. SCD, excuse me. Yes. And this was an NBER, National Bureau of Economic, what does the R stand for? Anyway, and so, you know, these are, it seems to be the research. research. The R oh, is E-R. for research. <laughs> um, you know, I could be wrong, but I, I'm guessing this is sort of more economics, the more the economics approach to things, which why the risk difference, the linear model actually seems to me, or maybe it's political science. But anyway, it seems to me like that's a more of a go-to for uh-huh. that population. I, I just thought it was, I just thought it was an a, a interesting difference in that, you know, Economics papers in general have fewer authors, have more, um, often have longer introductions, which is another thing that's had a longer introduction than many of the uh, <laughs> the New England Journal papers that we normally read, which is, I like. I like a little bit of a setup to the story. Anyway, that's, that's all I have to say about that one. Uh, so let's move on to our second segment, which is... I want to talk about a, a viewpoint piece. It was a page long, and it was published in Nature, just Nature, just Nature. I think it's just, just Nature. Nature, yep. Nature um, by uh, Dr. Samin Vizier. So uh, Samin has a podcast that she does with Sanjay Srivastava and uh, Alexa Tullett called the Black Goat Podcast, which I really enjoy. And it's it's much more focused on the psychological sciences, but it's really focused on, you know, academia and, you know, the replicability crisis. And so it's a really, it's a really good listen. And I highly recommend anybody who listens to this podcast to to check it out. But she wrote a piece in, in Nature called A Toast to the Error Detectors. And it was a, a, a view piece on a lot of the stuff that I would say has been going on with the replicability crisis in the the psychological sciences. And we're not obviously immune to any of that in epidemiology. But she's very much focused here on the idea of error detectors as something that is um, something that people do, right? This isn't something that um, just happens. Errors don't just come to light. People actually have to identify these errors. And sometimes that's because you're just reading through a paper and you see something and it doesn't look right. And sometimes that's because, you know, it's your, you've decided that that is your mission is you are going to work on making science better by being an error detector. And you're going to go out and look for problems in the scientific literature and you're going to make it public. And those are very different approaches to getting to possibly the same end. But she notes that in some instances, this has been conflated with bullying, that this has been seen as a negative. I've certainly seen a lot of people who have talked about uh, people who are, quote unquote, error detectors as data thugs that that. Uh, or maybe maybe data thug refers to slightly different concepts, but the idea that you're you know you're basically just going to go out there and find problems with other people's research. You're not going to go and and spend the time to do your own. Which, by the way, the people who I have come across who are error detectors seem to be doing really good science themselves. But anyway, but I guess it, it falls in the it's easier to destroy than to create type category for um, the way that some people view this. And she points to a specific example of a of a uh, student who had written to her saying that, so she says, last month I got a private Twitter message from a postdoc bruised by the clash between science as it is and how it should be. He'd published a commentary in which he pointed out errors in a famous researcher's paper. The critique was accurate, important, and measured, a service to his field, but it caused him problems. His advisor told him that publishing the criticism had crossed a line and he should never do it again. 
So I guess the question is, I mean, is this what what's the right way to for science to be self-correcting? Do we need people whose and whose job is it? Do we need people who mm-hmm. are, you know, that is their job? Is this what peer review is meant to be? You know, I mean, peer reviewers don't have time to do everything. What's the what's the answer to this particular problem and how do we do it in a way that is, you know, is respectful but is still, you know, gets to the bottom of problems? Yeah. I mean, I definitely I don't think it can be pushed to the peer review process, which is already burdensome for for some. And there are only certain types of errors you can you can detect as a as a peer reviewer. And you go into that process, you know, with expertise in one thing, but maybe not the kind, you know, the the full range of expertise you need to detect all of the errors. So I don't think that that's where it needs to be done. But but I think, you know, one of the most important points that comes out from this commentary is this, the power dynamic that's involved in this. And yeah, right, that oftentimes the air detectors are young, ambitious, new scientists who maybe even have different methodologic training than, you know, more senior people and really do have a new perspective to bring, but yet are being shut down for disturbing, disturbing the peace and, um, and not, you know, staying in, staying in line. I have definitely, I've seen this play out a little bit on Twitter. I mean, I'm sure we all have. Yeah. Yeah. And it can get really, really ugly. And I couldn't agree with you more. And I, it, it seems to me that that there's also this tension between what is error and what is just an advancement in our understanding. Now, if if we yes. had a, you know, if we had a science scientific community in which reputation was not nearly as important as it is, mm-hmm. or ego wasn't involved, you might be able to say, okay, so I published this paper to the you know with 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 the best of intentions to do the best possible research that I could at the time it turns out that either I didn't understand something or the methods hadn't developed and they've advanced now and we understand things that we didn't understand before and hey more power to you I was wrong yeah but that's really it seems to be the exception more than the rule that people don't generally want to I guess so. So, okay, so let me make this personal for, you know, when I get a letter that has been written about my work, you know, letters are rarely written because they are (laughs) want to tell you how great you are. They're written because they want to point out something you've done wrong. And I find that my immediate response is, you know, is to push back is they're they're wrong and I'm going to find a way to, you know, Mm -hmm. and then I stop and I, you know, more often than not, I actually have kind of found that often I don't even want to respond to letters because I feel like let, let them stand on their own and I shouldn't come back and try and convince you they're wrong. Let it let it be and let other people decide. But it is you, there is that, you know, immediate move to defensiveness. And typically the, the letters aren't things that are saying you're wrong. They're saying you've interpreted it wrong or you've, de- but it, you know, it's not like you've, you've, you've done something that is fundamentally flawed because that's more the case where something isn't, doesn't go to a letter. It's something that needs to be retracted right. or heavily revised. So I can understand. My point is, I can understand that instinct to want to say, "Oh, you, you know, you young kids, what do you know with your fancy new methods? You know, we we know what we're doing, and everything was just fine before you all came along." But but I hope I don't ever say that, and I hope I, you know, my my end result is to say, "Yeah, I mean." Let's take a look at it and let's figure out why you're getting a different answer than I. Do I don't know. Yeah, but I think, you know, so rarely does it come down to being right or wrong. I mean, if it was if it was that easy, (laughs) this this wouldn't be such a problem. I think, you know, really, it's just you make analytic choices and I think you can make better choices or worse choices. But you're always you know, it's there's always this continuum. And so. You know, there is definitely a role for error detectors for finding errors, but I think there's another piece of this is just having differing opinions about what is the best, what is the best approach. And and sometimes it falls into 
into that category. I yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that one. I, I mean, I think based on what little I know about the the issues that are going on in the psychological sciences, I think that we are probably talking more about cases where there really are errors, mistakes okay. that come about either through you know p hacking type approaches that that got us somewhere that we shouldn't have, or or just you know errors that are you know. I don't know, you could either fraudulent or not necessarily fraudulent, but just something that you can clearly detect was, you know, the, the, the P value doesn't match up with the X, you know, whatever it is. Real errors. Yes. What's the best way to deal with those? Because I can tell you, I have, I have not that long ago been in a situation where there was a mistake in something that I did Mm -hmm. and the people who found it were kind enough to come to me and tell me about it so that I could correct the error myself rather than you know, having to to have that, you know, either mediated through a journal or have that be, you know, just sort of a put out there publicly and, and rather than and I thought it was I thought it was incredibly kind of those people, but it 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 relied on me to be willing to to do the right thing, I suppose. And if then if I didn't, then they would then be put in the position of having to go public and say right. not only did they do something wrong, but they wouldn't even, you know, fix it. And, you know, that puts other people in a, in a, a pretty awkward position. So what's the right way to, to do these things? I mean, I, I like the approach you, you described. I mean, that seems like the most collegial way forward to at least give the author an opportunity to correct the error. Because it is easy to make Errors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this one and, wasn't a, was not a major one, so I, I'm I don't want to sound like I'm <laughs> oh I'm wonderful and happy to correct my own mistakes. Yeah. I'm sure you know th- this was a really small thing. It didn't change the results. It didn't you know, but but had to had to right. acknowledge it. But, but I think everyone's been in the position of you revise a paper and you know something doesn't get updated and yep. you know you're scrambling at the last minute to get that. Ch- so I mean those things can happen, and I think it's it would be best if we gave people the benefit of the doubt that they're you know. They're trying to publish rigorous work, but we're human. But but I agree. But then, you know, what if you weren't you and you didn't do anything? Or what if it had been a, a major error that, that changed yeah. the conclusions of, of your study yeah. and you weren't willing to change it on your own? I mean, then, yeah, the the onus is on, on the person who found it, I guess. If you go looking too hard, you... Uh, you may find these things. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think that's some of the concern that people have is that if there are people who style themselves as I'm going to go out there and find the errors in order to make science better. And I'm, I'm not uh, discounting the, the reasons why people do it. But if they do it, it's sort of like, well, you know, you probably could find some small errors and probably a lot of different papers. Why why are we going after the ones that we're going after? And I think that that from what I have heard, the people who are going, you know, looking for these things are looking for high profile things because those are the things that are getting the most play, sure. the most impact. And, you know, that probably makes sense, but it could certainly feel like I'm, you know, you're you're being targeted. You know, uh, yeah. it, it raises a lot of complex issues. But I think that if we if we are all aware that there are people out there who are going to be, you know, scouring our work for mistakes. That will probably lead us to do better, not yeah, not, I, not worse. I, I think it's a. I think it's. I don't know. It's it's a good insurance policy. So, are you saying we should raise our glasses and have a toast to the, to error, the error detectors? detectors? Sure, I'm with you on that one. I agree. I th- I think this is. Um, you know, this is certainly something that we should we should be in support of. Obviously, care deeply about. You know collegiality and, mm-hmm. and kindness, but those two aren't necessarily in conflict and shouldn't be seen that way. I agree. All right. Well, let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. You want to, you want to go first? Or you want me to, cause you look like you're, you're nope. looking around I, for, I, I want oh, you to, have props? <laughs> no, oh. but I, I do. I have to, <laughs> I have to um, refer to something on my Kindle. Wait, for this. Now, that, that is a Kindle. Why is it black and white? Kindles are always black and white. What? It's supposed to be like reading the pages of a book. I thought easy uh, on the eyes. I thought Kindles were now just uh, uh, like tablets. Tablets. Yeah. No, because that's a Old screen. School. It's much easier to to read on a Kindle than on your iPad. I did not know the old school Kindle still existed. It's not. You can buy. <laughs> it's 
not old school. Um, Sorry. Anyway. Sorry. Um, we also have an iPad at home, Matt, so we're not living in the dark ages. Okay. Yet. But I it's better not, to read on a Kindle. I, I was not critiquing. Okay. My Amazing and Amusing is actually inspired by a dream I had. Obviously. Um, a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So it was two days before you, you a pretty know, big Nick Nick interprets dreams. Does so, he? Okay. Yeah, so. Well this one isn't isn't it's pretty easy to interpret this one. Okay. It was two days before a big grant deadline. I had a dream that I was being chased by some kind of a large wild cat. Mm. Like uh Cat cat or well, no, like a, I couldn't cat. tell whether it was a tiger, tiger. or a lion or yep. a leopard or something, yep. but something in that. Something in that furry. Thing. And my reaction in the dream was to run. Yeah. And I woke up pretty stressed out, yep. but also thinking that probably wasn't very wise. Like, I hope I would be smarter in real life. I don't think you'd want to run from the large wild cat. Because it's faster than you. It's, I am not fast. <laughs> <laughs> but even if I was speedy, I think that the cat would win. The cat's going to catch you. So um, so then I was thinking like, well, what should you do yeah. if you, you know, what should I, my dream persona have done to, to protect herself? And so I ended up finding this book which is basically how to respond to all kinds of different animals if you encounter them in the wild. Specifically animals. This is not yes. the, like how to get out of every possible terrible situation. No, just animals, animals. But not just animals that we consider predators. Some of them in the book that are covered are also we would consider to be more like pests. Like she has a chapter on bedbugs mm. or on lice. For don't, instance, don't stay in a hotel. Don't have kids. Right. Yeah. I didn't read those ones. But the closest thing she has in the book to what I encountered in my dream is a mountain lion, because these are all things. These aren't like the animals you see on safari. These are like things that you could see on your morning run in suburban Boston. And um, there was recently a mountain lion in San Francisco, like in the city yeah. of San Francisco. So if you encounter a mountain lion, you're supposed to look big. And that is the title of this book by Rachel Levin, Look Big, because oftentimes that is your best strategy. Yeah. So you're supposed to stare it in the eye, open your coat if you have one, yell, scream, wave your arms. Don't play dead. It will eat you. Pick and up a stick. definitely don't run. That definitely is the ad- don't run. <laughs> no, do not run. But I, I, I've heard pick up a stick. Okay, sticks, I think, you know, for some of these throwing, so for no, instance- No, not, not to throw, to make yourself look bigger. Okay, to, yes, so that's like the coat idea, yeah. opening your coat. But if you were to run into a coyote, which I often have okay, while I, running- I ran into a coyote on our street. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, all the time. Yep. Also, stand tall, make eye contact, wave your arms, yell, you know, and scream. If it's a mom with pups- you should try to slink away, throw rocks if necessary, don't sprint. But fortunately, only two people have been killed by coyotes in, in North America. So I think your small animals, you know, they have something to really worry about, but humans, not so much. Another really interesting one, I'll just do one more, geese. So I spent geese years crossing the street when a goose was on my side because I had been attacked by a goose while running. And when that thing comes at you with its tongue out and its wings spread fully open, it is terrifying. You've been attacked by a goose? while running along the muddy river. But apparently I did instinctually exactly what I was supposed to do. You are supposed to duck while looking it in the eye. And I did. I just dove into some bushes. But you're supposed to keep eye contact. Never turn your back on the goose. Or you could get goosed. <laughs> um, but she also has chapters on skunks and turkeys. And then at the end of the book, turkeys are can be really mean. At the end of the book, she has... I actually don't know what time period this is over, but she has the, I think it's annual, annual number of deaths caused by certain types of animals in the U.S., I think. Guess what? Did you see my open Kindle? Do you know what number one is? No, what the I top didn't see ranking it. one? Okay. 
Get, just guess what animal native to the U.S. kills more people every year so than if it any was, other. If it, was, if it was worldwide, I'd say hippo. No. Nope. But we don't have a lot of hippos in the U.S. No. Nope. And if it was Australia, I'd say kangaroo. But in the U.S., I'm going to have to – I would go with mountain lion. Deer. 200 oh, deaths in the U.S. Which, of course, is presumably the same reason why so many people are, are killed by kangaroos. Yeah. It's because you hit them with your car. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then next is bees, Moose. wasps, and hornets. Oh. Then dogs and cows and horses, all about the same, about 20 a year. Things like bears and sharks and alligators, you know, they're all yeah. like one one a year. Super but, uncommon. But, but, and, and part of that is because you are much more likely to run into a deer in the United States than you are to run into an alligator or a bear. Yeah. although Because I would have said moose, but, but you're only going to run into a moose up in the northern parts, whereas a deer you could run into just about anywhere just in the United anywhere. States. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Deer. I knew deer are something to stay away from. Okay. So mine is a, um, I went with a Twitter handle that I really have been in, enjoying because it fits so much with my sensibilities uh, as an epidemiologist and it fit perfectly with the study that we were just talking about. Okay. Um, so this is uh, a – it falls in a line of Twitter handles, that, one of which I talked about before, which was the Just Says in Mice. Do you remember that one? Mm-hmm. In which uh, he tweeted out Just Says in Mice for all these studies that were seeming to make grandiose health claims and, in fact, were just studies of mice. Well, this one is by uh, Git MK, who is on Twitter is known as The Health Nerd. He's got a podcast um, known as Sensational Science, which I would also recommend. It's great. And uh, he has a Twitter handle called Relatively Risky, or just says just says risks, in which he tweets out studies in which they report a very large relative risk and say nothing about the absolute risk. And then he tells you what the absolute risk is. So let me give you a couple of examples. I can't read the whole headline so in this particular study, but it said, want to reduce death by 31%? A new study of 6,000 adults, blah, blah, blah. And he writes, relative risk decrease, 31%. Absolute risk decrease, 0.4%. So this one from Precure says... Pyrethrin incesticide exposure and risk of mortality, a tripled risk of cardiovascular mortality in the top tertile of exposure. That sounds really bad. Yep. Relative risk increased 200%, absolute increase 1%. Wow. And last one, smokers who switch to e-cigarettes are twice as likely to have a stroke. Again, relative risk increase 83%, absolute increase risk 0.7%. Percent, and I like it because I think this is a this is a theme that we hit on on this podcast that there are so many so many studies that will make you think based on listening to the news or just the headlines that there is something large going on and in relative terms there are they are but you got to be able to learn how to interpret relative uh, versus absolute risks and the absolute risks are what we care about most of the time in my opinion at least for public health practice and they're often quite small so. I'll leave it there. Uh, That is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthEx or you can tweet me at at ProfMadFox or Chris at ID.Gill or Janet at Jennifer R. Ryder or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing and interpreting all of our dreams. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. 